when we're in changing times and things are maybe what we consider a, an uncomfortable, uh, I guess, culture, this pa- passage really does speak to us as we look into First Peter 5, 1-7. And, and if you were to kind of look at this as kind of overall what it is, is it's the last chapter of 1 Peter, which we've learned that uh, through the process of going through First Peter, how there is, there's been just this, uh, I guess there is a push against the Christians in this first century, and Peter is speaking to Christians to encourage them to hold the course and to stay there. And so as we look into chapter 5, we first see him addressing uh, this group of people called the elders. And so as we look into the elders, I want you to recognize that Peter was an elder, and as we had a um, leadership meeting yesterday, uh, many of the elders were here and who I would consider people who are just, who are just leaders in the church and invested in the church. And it's good to see them and hear their input and getting a sense for how the body of Christ is, uh, is dealing with um, what we're going through right now with pandemics and all the change and, and whatnot. Well, Peter also addresses that too. But before we get to First Peter... Uh, just kind of flash back to Peter, one of Peter's last interactions with Jesus while he was here. Uh, and what we, what we see is that Peter is really the person who Jesus kind of personally put a few kind of, uh, I guess, special responsibilities on. So as we read John 21, uh, we see where Peter has been addressed by, by Jesus as to what his role will be. So watch this as we read and. Uh, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, they had been out fishing, and they had been fishing and not so much uh, luck. And as Jesus appeared to the Messiah Tiberius, he had a, uh, a message for Peter that he wanted to communicate. So Jesus gets breakfast ready for him, and he has this conversation with Peter. Peter has denounced him three times, and you can imagine as Peter is going back, and we don't know from the text whether Peter has gone back to fishing his previous occupation and just sort of chuck following Christ, or whether he is kind of in this transition period and just confused. And I, th- I think a lot of us, if we just kind of look around us in the culture, there's a lot of confusion, and there's a lot of anxiety about, about things. And so what Jesus does, he sort of not only gives Peter a clear indication of what's going to happen in the future, with these conversations, but in this particular passage, he gives him his role and how he's supposed to fulfill that role in the future. So Peter responds, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, if Jesus said to you, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, then you would assume that your job is to do what? Feed the sheep, take care of the sheep, right? Okay, you made it very clear, almost like just used as few words as possible to communicate to Peter what his job would be. And Peter got this because we know he got this because when he re- writes in 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 through 7, we see him reiterating what that means and what he had come to understand that to mean as being in a very, uh, a very experienced 
uh, shepherd as he was shepherding not only local churches, but also giving, uh, obviously, leadership to the whole church, as a, I guess, globally. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as, God's want, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter, this is the, the passage where Peter hits a couple of points. And first he addresses the elders and he gives them some instructions. This is your job. This is kind of what it entails. And then he talks to older men and younger men and older people and younger people. And he talks about humility and how that is to play out in the family of God. And then he talks about the fact that there, there is this thing called uh, fear and anxiety and how we're supposed to handle that. And I think all of those things, if I just look through the headlines in our, any particular magazine or newspaper, would be applicable. There is, there is a, there's anxiety. There's a sense in which we don't know what's going on. There's fear. There's a sense of pride and arrogance and, and how humility goes right up against that and, and has a positive impact on so many things. And so just to, to recognize that this passage is really just speaking to us today. But first, as we look at 1 Peter 5.1, it says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So what does Peter say? He says, I'm an elder. I'm a fellow elder. Actually, he uses this word, the sin presperatus, which means the same as you. I'm writing to my fellow elders. And so as he writes to them, he just reminds them, of what their job is. It's almost like he's going back to the Sea of Tiberias and he's telling them, hey, I heard it right from Jesus' mouth, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. And so this idea that he is transferring that on them is, is here. And you realize that he's not only just a, an elder, he, and we have elders in our church, some are functioning on the board right now, some are not, and they're maybe off rotation or they're, they're people who are experienced Christians who are really fit the, the, the definition of an elder. But Peter's not just an elder. He's also not only a witness of Jesus Christ and, and really a witness to his crucifixion, which is so unique, but he's also an apostle. And an apostle is very, very unique. So a lot of times I'll have people say, well, um, is a disciple an apostle? Is an apostle a disciple? And I don't want to make this too simple, but you guys are, I hope you all are disciples because you're here this morning. You're a learner and a follower of God. But if, correct me, but I don't think any of you are apostles. I'm certainly not, okay? I wasn't there. I wasn't a firsthand witness. There is a certain number of people who were apostles, and Jesus specifically picked them out. Peter had the privilege to be one of 13 people to be an apostle. 
amazing, amazing privilege to become a person who would not only run around and watch and sleep with and snore with and just live life with Jesus, but also to see him die and to be crucified and having those conversations with him. So elders in that day, in the Old Testament especially, were respected. A lot of times they would judge in cases like, hey, he took my this and I took that. It's almost like you're a parent. And, you know, you have one kid said, he hit me over the head while he first stole this from me, and then you hear the whole story. Well, that's what elders did. They dealt with a lot of problems. And so as an elder, Peter was experienced. He knew what it was like to shepherd people, to take care of people. He goes on, he says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. And then you flash back to the book of Acts where Luke writes this, Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. And you see this message of a willing, a willing leader to step into a role of caring, tending, watching over a flock. And that's exactly what a, an elder does. So a lot of people will think of, uh, as, a, as an elder, they'll think of some old guy with gray hair and whatever. And that may be true. It may be more true as time goes on. But you realize that the function of an elder is, is there's something specific about this um, as you kind of read through some of the words that mean elder. So as we look at John 21 and just kind of flash back to that conversation that Jesus had with Peter, we recognize that when he said, take care of the sheep, feed my sheep, some of the primary, uh, primary rules of a shepherd is to feed, care, lead, guide, and protect. That's what they are. So as something comes to attack the church, the, the shepherd is there to give guidance and clarity on that. Uh, how do we handle this particular situation? And so those elders were given that rule, and that was a God-ordained rule for them to take so that there would be leadership over the flock. Now, there's a difference between elders. Well, there, let me just say this. There are different words in the New Testament about what an elder is. And so there's one word that's presbyteros, which would remind you of the Presbyterian church down there. Okay, so presby. And that, that word has a specific meaning to it. And it really has to do with the function of what an elder does, which is to tend the flock to take care of them. There's also another, uh, some other words that have more to do with the office of being an elder. And so there are, there are words that we see sometimes in and uh, we actually would see them in Timothy and Titus differently. So the, there's qualifications for a leader. And if I were to, to give you those qualifications, if you were to ask me who can be a leader, I would say you need to turn to Timothy and Titus. And both of those passages describe what an elder is. One actually refers to the office of the elder. The other one refers to the function of the elder, what he does. This is, this is who it is. And so those put together, as we read through the New Testament, we realize that they're interchangeable, that the elders are elders, and that's who it is. They do have a function, and that function is to watch over the flock. But there are some, some cautions that Peter throws to, to us, and here are the cautions. It says, not domineering, so not lording it over those entrusted to you, that's what that means, but being examples to the flock. And so we have this elder who is, who is an elder who actually leads by being an example, and someone who is not a domineering, does not use power or force to, to get his own way, but is someone who is gentle in, in his, his actions, but yet has the authority 
carried behind him. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 16, there's a parallel passage in a lot of ways. If you look at 1 Peter 1 through 4 and Ezekiel 1 through 6, or 34, 1 through 16, you realize that it's really a parallel thing. It's like looking at the Old Testament, this is exactly the example of what Peter is probably referring to. So in verse 4 of 34, Ezekiel says, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought, brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. And as Ezekiel writes this, he says, because there's no shepherd, this is what happens. And Peter says, do the work of a shepherd. It's too important because the result, if an elder doesn't do their work, is that the people will, will experience um, this kind of harm. And so Peter is really, uh, uh, I guess, encouraging and exhorting the leaders of that time to lead the people who were going through a very, very difficult time. They had lost their jobs. They were being persecuted uh, well beyond what, us, what we, we experience in the United States. And so Peter's role here is to encourage the, the leaders to tend to the flock, to do a good job of shepherding them over and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Who is the chief shepherd? Is it the, is it the president of our board? No, thank you. Was that Mike? <laughs> I think I heard his voice. No, thank you for that answer. The chief shepherd is not the president of the board. Who is the chief shepherd? Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so as Peter encourages these, these elders, he's really encouraging under-shepherds. There's a chief shepherd, and there are a lot of under-shepherds. And there have been over the years, if you think through the church itself. And so he says, as the chief, uh, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Okay, so what is this crown of glory? What is it? Ah, Mark, thank you. And Scripture talks about several crowns. There's five that I saw listed in there. One of them is the crown of glory. And now, why would Peter say, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away in this passage? Well, it's because he's telling these shepherds that even though things are very, very tough, over and we, we I remember about, I'm going to say eight years ago because I'm so terrible with time anymore, but Eight years ago, we went up in the men's retreat, and we, went, we decided to hike to the very far reaches of the, the mountains. I mean, we were, I don't know, I don't even know the trek that we took, but I kept hearing Brent Brooks say, it just, it's just a little bit further, it's over the next hill, it's over the next hill. <laughs> yeah, and as people kind of were dying off, it's over the next hill, over the next hill, he was doing a great job of encouraging us on because we're like, man, it must be over the next hill. But there were a few doubters towards the end. And as you realize, these shepherds are in a very difficult situation. Jesus, Peter is saying to them, it will be worth it. it will be, there will be a hill that we will go over top and it will be worth it. There is a crown of glory. Now, it turns out that all of those who, who long for his appearing, that's the crown of glory. We will all receive that. But that doesn't exclude the, the leaders and the elders as well. 
And so this is, a, this is a crown that is important for us to recognize that we are to look forward to the return of Christ. Oh, wow, and if you don't look forward to the return of Christ, let's just have a conversation someday because I think you would totally change your mind about that. Because I don't care if it's your birthday tomorrow or if you're going to Honolulu on a, on a flight tomorrow. It will not compare if Jesus came back right before everybody went out the door. That would be an awesome thing. Believers, us, we're unbelievably blessed to even think about the fact that we're going to be in the presence of his glory. It will be so amazing that I, it's unbelievable. You can't even conceive that. Romans 8, 18 says this, I consider that our present sufferings, and they're difficult, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And when we recognize that, it's like, okay, I can take the next hill. I can do one more hill. And, and, that, and that's a, a way for us to persevere and to know it will be worth it. Jesus has purpose for us. So he's addressed the elders. He's told them, here, the elders, this is what, this is what your role is. Uh, this is, you're, not to be, you're not to be a power-hungry person who just kind of domineering over your flock. You don't want to beat the flock. They meet in a little beating once in a while, but it's not for the beating of them, but it's for their good. And if you're a parent, you know what I just said, and you, you took it in all the right ways. Um, sometimes we need discipline, and that happens. Now he shifts, and he talks about humility. And humility is so important because if you've met someone who is proud, you recognize there is an ugliness about them that is kind of just, you just know that. Like someone on TV, I've seen him before where I'm like, oh, wow, that star. And you're kind of like, I kind of like that person. And then they open their mouth. Like when someone's interviewing them, and you're like, I totally changed my opinion about you because you're arrogant and you're kind of all about yourself. And one of the most attractive things when you see someone being interviewed, and I'm thinking of sports, people who are just super good at their particular sport, and when they get in front of a microphone, one of the most attractive things, and I'm sure it's not attractive to the whole world, but to me, is they're, they're doing this. And you just realize, oh, they get it. I like you even more than I liked you before because they're humble and they recognize that every good gift that they have, the privilege to throw a ball around and get paid millions or whatever they get paid, but not only that, but to recognize that this is a platform I'm thinking of Tim Tebow and those, the people who are like him who, who use that platform to say, you know what, anything I have, man, I came from the Lord. And to recognize that that's humility. That's just this, you know, you're at the zenith of your sport, and yet at the same time, you acknowledge that it's all from him. So in 1 Peter 5, 5, he talks about humility and gives us some good pointers in that area. In the same way, you who are younger, okay, so this is a very relative term, okay? So I don't know... If you consider yourself younger or older, I used to consider myself younger. Uh, we're waning on that for sure. Now all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He says to the younger people, submit to your elders. And what he's really referring to is the fact that there, is, there are elders who are recognized and, and they are for the protecting and shepherding and caring for the church and to, to submit to them because it is for your good that they are actually shepherding over you. They have your, they have your back. But in the same way, I mean, there's this saying about uh, children are to be what? And this is old saying, and I'm not agreeing with it, okay? First off, children are, children are to be what? Seen and not heard. How many of you have, 
had that said to you when you were younger or heard that said? Okay, is it true? Are you sure? Okay, good. <laughs> They're to be seen, not heard. It's not true. And one of the, one of the most endearing things is to see a very respect, respectable older person listening to younger people, wanting to glean from them. I get such a kick out of it in the hospital when I'm treating people and I, and I hear a CNA who's a young, young person just kind of being listened to by these, and you can see they're drawing this, drawing this young person, what is, what is your life like? Well, what do you enjoy doing? And you can just tell there's this listening that's going on. It's really, really cool. And you recognize that that has such an impact on their relationship immediately as soon as they take an interest in, and then it's sort of a mutual thing. Just recognizing that our mutual humility towards one another is so important, especially in the family of God. Because then that, what, what happens is, is and when you drop your guard and the other person drops the sword, you realize that the humbleness allows a, a fellowship to occur that otherwise doesn't. And it just takes time and it takes a certain attitude to, to, to have that come about. It says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Is that true or not? Does God oppose the proud? Can you tell me of one person in the Old Testament that you think of that was proud and he, God didn't like that? David. David. Okay, there you go. David? Anybody else? Solomon? Yep, Solomon. Anybody else? King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, that one. Whoa. Okay. Not going to do the grass thing. Okay. I will eat certain salads, but not, not grass. God opposes the proud. Why? Because it is so much not like God. When Jesus came to the earth, he had all the power given to him on these, the whole universe. And yet he did what? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. And so we have communion and we use this table and you just recognize it's kind of a, it's a, it's a symbol of humility. And that he would do that is just unbelievable. 1 Peter 3, 8, going back a couple chapters we went through earlier Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. And so Peter's telling us again, hey, you know what? Humility, boy, humility is so important to God. God opposes the proud, and we are to submit to elders because it is, it is to our benefit to have their leadership because they, they have our back in that way. When Jesus came down to the earth in John 13, 3 through 5, we just see this picture of humility and we know the setting. It's uh, John 13 is Jesus is about ready to go away and he's going to teach some very important lessons to his disciples. And one of those lessons is on what? The topic is servanthood and humility. And you could throw elders in this too because this is really Jesus being uh, the, the humble elder that he wants uh, his under shepherds to be. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And we know the rest of the story, what he went on to do. But when you recognize the fact that Jesus, the creator of the, earth, the whole world, 
humbled himself, wrapped a servant's towel. The Greek words there are very clear. It's a servant's towel, and he is in this servant's role, and he washes their feet. We recognize how important humility is. I mean, he had, he had not only humbled himself to come to the earth, but coming to the earth, he should have been a king from, from, the, from the moment he had an opportunity to even have interactions with people. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he, he may lift you up in due time. And there's this idea that Peter is saying we need to accept the suffering that goes on around us because Jesus did too, and we're going to go up and down a few hills. And Peter is saying there's a, there's, it's just over the hill. It's just over the hill. And there will be some good times and there will be some tough times, but hang with it. Luke 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it's just the idea that it's just this upside-down gospel and so the first is last, the last is first, and the humble, they will be exalted. Thanks, Pastor Try. And so James talks about the same things, but he, he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Parallel passage out of James. And it's this submission to, to God and being humble to him. It's actually how we, how we do spiritual warfare. A lot of people say, cast away, cast away Satan. I'm not opposed to that. It's actually submit to God, and he will draw near to you. And so there's this idea in which we realize that humility has almost a spiritual, uh, spiritual warfare aspect to it. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter 5, 8, which Pastor Ty will be talking about next week, it actually goes right into it coming out of humility. And you recognize, wow, is that a segue? It's a segue. And it talks about some other things about spiritual warfare, but they're connected because it's, there is a connection there. 1 Peter 5, 7, last verse, hang in there, only one more hill. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, does anyone doubt that God cares for them? Well, you wouldn't raise your hand, would you, because you're in church. And you're supposed to realize that, right? Okay. But does God really care for you? If Yes, thank you. He really, really cares for you. Now, there's a people, we apparently have over 400 people who would call the, the Rock Church their church. That's a lot of people. And when you recognize that God has this whole world full of followers who follow after him, you realize you're just one of millions of people who God says, you're my kid. Now, I have four children, and that doesn't even compare to how many God has. But sometimes I'm like, okay, is your birthday the... Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, you're the 16th and you're the 30th. God is... Every single hair on your head counted. I don't know how he does it because I'm not him and I'm not in his role. But he cares for every single one of his kids with an intimate care that surpasses anything we humans could possibly have. And he actually knows through, he knows what you're going through, what you're worried about, what your anxiety is, what your, what your biggest concerns are for the future. He also knows what your biggest joys are. That's the kind of God that we serve. He's not this distant God that doesn't really care and we're just to exalt him and worship him and that's all he's about. He wants to know us 
personally. And that's why he wants us to spend time with him and to spend time in his word so that we have a chance to actually get to know him and to cast all cares on him because he cares for us. If he, if he didn't say that, he'd be like, man, I don't want to bother God. I've heard people say, I don't want to bother God. He's got bigger problems. And then you read this passage and you go, you are not doing what God told you to do. Because when a, when, a, when a friend comes to you and they're willing to share some of their hurts and some of their cares with you, what does that do to your relationship? Yeah, it strengthens it, doesn't it? And vice versa. And you realize that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to realize that he's the source of not only everything that's good, but also what will give us the peace that allows us to go over the next hill. Max Lucado once observed that we fear being sued, finishing last, going broke. We fear the mole on our back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. We have sophisticated investment plans, and we create elaborate security systems, and we legislate a stronger military because of what? It's fear. It, all of those things are because of the fear that we have. And God says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I can say this, that we are people who are tending towards fear. And, and because of that, uh, God has a word for us. Do not fear. And he has to keep reminding us because we're, we're just too good at it. Um, there's a song, and, and it says that fear is a what? Is a liar. Fear is a liar. The research that I just read, and I'm sure between 97 and 99% of the things that we fear when they do the studies on them, what am I going to say next? They never happen. They never happen. So in our mind, we have something that's occupying all of our energy and our strength, and yet we're focusing on that thing that actually doesn't even happen. Where do you think that comes from? Ah, uh, steal, kill, and destroy. And if you read verse 5-7, and then if you were to flip over to 5-8 in 1 Peter... What would you read in 1 Peter 5, 8 without, well, go ahead and look. Anybody know 1 Peter 5, 8? He roams around like a lion. And you recognize there is a connection between our fear and, and the liar who just wants to just pour gasoline on that. And just recognize that when we're in a state of fear, and, and, and some things, fear is a good thing, it teaches us certain things, but when we stay there recognizing, it, it may have more to do with the one who's probing that. And just that God says, do not fear. He steals all, all those things that are good. Mark says this, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them, a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, Jesus was sleeping in the boat. I have an incredible ability to sleep almost anywhere, or at least I did before. I, there's pictures of me sleeping on the stairs and my hand over my head. The kids, they're kind of gathered around me, whatever. But if there was a storm, a squall, if you've ever been on a boat, first of all, the boat experience is one thing, but a squall is another thing. 
And you realize Jesus is sleeping, but they don't know that he is in control of all things. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so we recognize that he's with these disciples. He knows what's going on. And yet his, his response to them is, do you have no faith? And we, me, all of us ask that question at times. Do I have such little faith and I'm still worried about what's going to happen next year and what's going to happen in the, upon the next hill that we go over, the, the next change of power, the next virus that comes along, the next bill that comes in? All of those things have the, the ability to put us into a position where our mind is in a place where it can't worship God because we can't be anxious and yet have the spirit of God, which is love, joy, peace, 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 peace. And so you recognize it's kind of just this war that goes on. Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? We had this very verse. Mitch brought it up in small group on Thursday night in the context of, yeah, you know what? We're not in control of things, and yet he knows exactly what's going to happen. And the point of it is, is that God knows us and he cares about us. Even if we feel unloved, even if we feel like we are unlovable, even if we've sinned, even if we've done things that we just that we think God could never forgive, He still loves us just as much. Now I know that doesn't work in this world, but He's not out of this. He's not of this world, and He still loves us. He He is all for us. And there's a prescription for anxiety, and the reason why I want to really drill down on anxiety is because I think in the last month or two, I would say that anxiety has reached kind of what I would consider like maybe an all-time high for like the last three or four years, just my impression of things. But Philippians has kind of a prescription for us, and I want you to just remember this passage, and I want you to promise yourself when you get into a state of anxiety that you remember that Philippians 4.4, just making it easy, 4.4 is the start of this passage, this beautiful passage about how we are to reset our minds. It's kind of like um, just resetting the the, the computer, turning it off, turning it back on again, and saying, okay, God, I want your perspective on things. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Stop. Okay, so anytime you read, a, read the Bible, you want to look at what the book is that you're reading. Philippians, who wrote it? Where was he when he wrote it? In jail. He was in jail. So let me read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Does it mean any more to me when I recognize that Paul was in prison writing that? Absolutely. It's all perspective. It's perspective in, in seeing what he's writing out of. The Lord is near. Ah, he's close to us. He's not this distant God. He's a God who's, if you're a believer, he's right inside of you. The Holy Spirit is actually inside of you. I know it's hard to believe. 
You have to believe what he said. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And you realize, do not be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and petitioning God and going to him and saying, I, I can't handle this. This is for you to handle. Giving it to him. And then verse 4, 8, which I think is oftentimes maybe a little bit, I don't know, just maybe miss. The importance of this is so, so, so eminent in our particular situation. And definitely as, as uh, we look at the first century Christians, it says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I think um, Lisa quoted this yesterday at our meeting together. And here's the perspective. What you feast on in your mind will affect who you trust and who you're looking to. And if what you feast on is just the headlines of a paper or something you're reading in the, in the computer, it will affect you in a way that maybe God doesn't intend. And so is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it praiseworthy? Is it excellent? Are those things that you can say about what we put in our mind and what we allow to, to, to occupy our mind? And that has a huge impact on how we think and who we worship. Just some applications for today because he, Peter writes this and he has some different sections here. And Do you have someone who you are leading? Everyone's an elder of some sort. I'm not saying in the technical sense of Timothy and Titus, but you're leading someone. If you're a mama or a dad or a grandma or a grandma, I know you're leading someone. If you're a fifth grader, guess who you're leading? How many of you look for, looked up to someone who was ahead of you in school? So you're like high school... Cody, you're a leader. I know, he's shaking his head going, no, I can't be a leader. Yes, he is. You are a leader. And if you, and Pete's a leader, and, and so you recognize that someone's following behind you. Sometimes we actually kind of recognize that and we take those people underneath our wings and we bring them along. I think that's really cool because it allows us to not only have an impact in people's lives, and we don't have to be an elder to do that is the whole point there. Do you demonstrate humility and Christ-like where there's a bowl and there's a basin and there's some water and you're washing someone's feet? What will you do with your anxiety this week? When you have an anxious thought, are you going to take it captive and think about what's true and noble and right and praiseworthy and excellent? Or are we going to allow ourselves to dwell on that and push that around in our mind? And what will you choose to think about as you feed those, those thoughts as we recognize that God has a plan for us to be changers of the people around us. And when they see us acting peaceful in an anxious situation, you know what it does? In Matthew 5, 16, it says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds or your actions, that they may praise your Father. And so when you, you act differently in front of people, maybe it's because you're not all anxious and you can just say, God has got this. God has got this. That changes how people see us. And they recognize there's something different about that person because they're, they're not acting the same way as everybody else. And that's encouraging to know that we can be a changer in that way, just in the way that we interact with other people. 
and how we allow ourselves to be used by God in that way. Corrie Ten Boom, who during the first war, or during World War II, first along with her family, hid the Jews from the Nazis and later was captured and placed into a concentration, tra- a concentration camp. And she wrote this, Worried it is not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worried is not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. And God does not want us to live with a spirit of fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, t- for Peter and thank you for his words. Encouragement to elders to just shepherd the flock and to be uh, caretakers and tenders of the, of the people who uh, are his children. Thank you for the fact that we've had elders who watch over us. And I just, would just want to thank you for their oversight and their care. Father, thank you for the, just the reminder that humility is better than being arrogant and prideful. That humility, mutual humility, not only in a marriage, it allows for peace and, and prosperity, but also in our interactions at work, in our interactions with people who we, who we know on a day-to-day basis. And Father, just that we would not be anxious. I pray that our church would be known for people who just trust the Lord and who don't, be, who don't get anxious over situations that even the people around them get anxious about. God, that we would be a light into a world that, that, is, that we would be different, that we would be set apart, that we would be holy, that we would be people that follow you and trust you, knowing that there's a, there is a reward over the hill. It is being in your very presence, having a relationship with you that is not limited by this body, not limited by this world. And we look forward to that as we, as we go through this world. And at the same time, Father, help us to stay tied into you. You are our vine. We are the branches. God, that your fruit, the spirit of your fruit would be inside of us. Love, joy, peace. That we would know those things, that we would experience those things, and that we would share those things with those people around us that so desperately need to know you. And we just pray this in your blessed son's name. Amen.